This is Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant." So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, Shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. 
Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is God's word, and let's pause for a moment in prayer. Father in heaven, we are here in your house on your day with your people, with your word open in our laps, and we call on you as the great teacher to make us great students, that we would learn what these things mean, not just what they mean, but the implications that fall from them. And Lord, would you show us more of yourself, make us more like you, give us what is necessary to be obedient, to understand and obey your word. We ask in your precious name, amen. I mentioned earlier that we'll read chapter 19 next week, portions of it. Um, Those of you that know your Bibles know what is ahead in chapter 19. And you may recall that um, months, if not uh, more like years ago, when we studied through the book of Judges, there was a portion of Judges that we did not read here from the pulpit. I signed that as homework. Read that before you come back next week. We'll talk about it. And there's reasons for that. And I think perhaps the best way to illustrate the reasons for doing such a thing, um, there's this story that Corey Ten Boom used to use, uh, at ha- something that happened to her on a train ride with her father when she was just a little girl. She overheard something on the train. She didn't understand, and she asked her father about it. He didn't respond to her just then. And when they got ready to leave the train, he put his suitcase down next to her and said, Can you take this off the train for me? She tried to lift it, but it's too heavy. He knows that, and now she does. And he said, It's too heavy, isn't it? She says, It is. And He said, And so is that question that you asked me. Until you're bigger and stronger, you'll need me to carry that for you until then. This is a room I consider to be a general audience. Some of what we'll cover next week uh, is not appropriate for all. It is Scripture, and we are going to cover it. But I'm going to leave the reading, some of it, we'll read some of it, to you. And I say that now in order to help take full advantage of what we just read, and then with next week putting chapter 19 together with it, the best way to understand these two chapters is to understand them as polar opposites. What we just read, this midday visit with Abraham and these mystery visitors, is the epitome of hospitality. That is completely different than what we'll see in chapter 19. The midday visit in 18 and then the midnight scene in Sodom next week 
are meant in every sense to be viewed as a contrast between light and darkness. The first is warm, it's hospitable, it's full of promise. It's highlighted by Abraham's pleading for justice on the half of his extended family who live in Sodom, which is destined for destruction. But the second scene, next week's chapter, that I assigned as homework, is confusion, it's chaos, it's, it's total ruin in the end. And after the cities are destroyed and there's nothing left, those that survive live in a loveless squalor which is far more uglier than the destructions of the city could ever be. What you've got is what God had planned for us and then what God had never planned for anybody. And they're both at at odds, polar opposites against one another. So having said that, let's move forward with what we've got on our plate for today. Perhaps first thing to note from this passage, chapter 18... Uh, realizing that nothing's been added from far back to uh, chapter 12 when, when God chooses Abraham to be the father of a multitude. And then in chapter 15, more information is added. Uh, by the time we get to 17, we are looking at an articulation of a covenant. Well, by the time we get to 18, nothing has been added in this chapter. It's the same promise in Isaac's going to be the first of this man's descendants that will you know, number the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. But because nothing has been added, there must be something left out, right? And what's left out here is that Sarah, Abraham's wife, must be brought into believing in the possibility of childbirth. What we just read is that she still has difficulty with, with believing such a far-fetched story in her estimation. So how might that happen? How do we get Sarah on board with the promise uh, of God for the world, for that matter? Well, it's going to take this supernatural encounter of, of, of visitation by God and two angels is what we're going to learn. Um, now, though this is characteristic of Bedouin hospitality. I don't know if too many of you are familiar with the hospitality of the Bedouin lifestyle. Uh, if you've been over to the Middle East or even the Holy Land, you may see out on the horizon what look like tent dwellings. Uh, their vehicles are camels. They live very traditionally. And their hospitality is legendary. Uh, if you watched The Black Stallion when you were a kid, you know this is true. If you read uh, things having to do with, uh, what was the guy's name? Lawrence of Arabia. You know, the, the, this hospitality is such that anybody who comes by is taken in as their guest and they're treated like royalty. And that's exactly what Abraham has done with these three that he sees in the middle of the day. Uh, he treats his midday guests like royalty He assures his guests that their arrival is an honor, though it's the hottest part of the day. Uh, He refers to the meal that he hurries to prepare as a mere morsel of bread, if you caught that, Uh, though it's an elaborate feast, and then stands by until his guests are finished. He stands there while they eat. But then by the time the meal is over, Abraham's guests get down to business, and they open that discussion with the question in verse 9. 
They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Uh, it's, it's very basic Hebrew there. Um, it, it would probably need a gesture because it's just basically she, tent. <laughs> She's that way. And if we keep reading, uh, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah's listening at the tent door behind him. So there's details in here. First of all, uh, we now have the identity of at least one of those travelers, right? You notice there that Lord is spelled in all caps. That's the divine name. So th- this is God himself. The two others will learn are angels. But the question remains, does Abraham know that yet? He knows something's up. Uh, that is shown in the way that he treats these men all through. And then using the word Lord to refer to them. It looks as if he warms to this idea as the story unfolds. So the Lord himself has come to convince Sarah of what is soon to happen. Sarah's position in the tent situated behind the guests, along with uh, the access to her internal monologue. We, the reader here, we're reading this story long after it takes place. but We have the benefit of like reading her mind. You see this in movies and in books and things. As you read, you have privileged information. So the reader knows this is very mysterious, but it's beginning to dawn on Abraham and, and Sarah later. This man shouldn't have been able to hear her. She's in the tent. He wouldn't have been able to see her face if she's smiling. But then he says to Abraham, uh, what's this about the laughter? So he knows things he shouldn't know. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old. When I was a kid, I cannot remember how many times I was warned as a child, you never, ever, ever use the word old to refer to anybody older than you. Are any of you taught that? We're reading the Bible. The Bible can say what it wants to, right? This is factual information. In place of old, my father would say, use something like old-er. It's modification. He explained to me the, the use of euphemism, right? Saying something and getting your point across, but saying it in a way that's not as abrupt or harsh or tacky or whatever. But if you notice, if you look here, uh, they give us the fact and then a euphemism. Now, Abram, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. That's a euphemism. It's saying the same thing. And then we get another piece of information. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Now, if you're taught as a child not to use the word old, and especially for older women, then that next category is certainly off limits. For anyone who wants to not ruin dinner or get left out in the cold or you just fill in the blanks here, right? But this is a very important piece of information here. We've been talking about this promised child for weeks now. We started this series six months ago. Years have passed. But this is more important than than age. This is not 
metabolically possible anymore. We're in miracle territory for this woman to have a child. So for her to laugh, I think we should cut her some slack. For her to be in disbelief is understandable. Though this delegation is there to convince her to believe not just a long shot, but to believe something that's otherwise impossible. This is a big deal. So, having positioned himself behind her in the tent, he knows things from her heart. We know the situation now. They're older, advanced in years. If the decades of waiting for this promised child upon whom the promises of Abraham's blessing hang weren't enough to discourage the possibility or hope of pregnancy, now all bets are certainly off. It's not just a long shot. It requires a miracle. So I'd written down, I'm not sure mortal man could understand the bitter amusement behind a woman like Sarah's laugh at the audacity of the visitor's claims. Not to mention the backstory of Sarah's attempts to raise children through Hagar, her handmaid, and how much of a disaster that was. And then, this came to mind with, with some help last night, trying to think through. When we think of laughter, we kind of think of things that are funny. Laughter is not always the response of humor, is it? Can you think of a scenario where if you don't laugh, you're probably going to cry instead? Anyone who's, who's ever dealt with, with a dying family member, say of, of Alzheimer's, to where just one more day of this is going to be the end of all of us. If, if you can't laugh through some of that, you surely will cry through some of that. How does a woman who's been told for decades, we're going to be, we're going to be the parents of a multitude, and the only attempt she ever made at trying to fix this herself blew up in everybody's face. And now, that ship has sailed. That's a euphemism too. And she laughs, but she's afraid because she comes out and says, I didn't, only to hear this mystery fellow say, but you did. All this to just try to put in at least a glimpse in our mind of the struggle, the, the spot that this poor woman and her husband find themselves in. And then here's what happens. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14 is the first of two amazing questions. This is what we'll use to make sense of all this here in a few moments. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In any other category, this is impossible. But you don't know who you're talking to. I am the Lord. All caps. I created this place out of nothing. I can do whatever I want to do. This is an invitation to stretch that faith perhaps more than it's ever been stretched before you. Let those words sink in. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's probably what your translation has, but if you've got some uh, Hebrew 
word study tools or you've got Logos or something like that, you just do a little search, you find out that that word there is often translated wonderful. I like that way better. In fact, that's the title of this message. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Don't put it in the form of the negative, too hard. Blow the top off your wildest dreams. Is anything too wonderful? That would be too good. That would be too great. You still don't know who you're talking to. This is the God of the universe. So let's leave that there. That's the first section of Genesis 18. Then everything shifts toward what will inevitably take place in chapter 19. So from here onward, we're looking at Abraham pleading for Sodom and his family members that live there. So what happens here with this, you probably noticed that the most memorable of what we read was the back and forth between God and Abraham over how many righteous people need to live in this city for it to be spared, to avoid destruction. Starts at 50, then 45, then 30, or 40, then 30, 20, 10. It's, it's odd. It just I, I don't know if any of you pray like that. If you've heard anyone pray like that, that's what this is, is a prayer, because it's a man speaking with God. So the initiative for Abraham's intercession for Sodom with God... And just that right there sounds strange, doesn't it? When you think of prayer, don't you kind of think at least of a, of a posture that goes along with it? You've, maybe if, if you're going to go all out, find a quiet place. Maybe you get on your knees. You close your eyes. You start to pour your heart out. And to anyone that believes the Bible, this is familiar to them, but anyone that thinks the Bible is, is silly, that probably seems silly to them too. They're wondering, what do you expect to happen? Is this telepathic conversation or whatever? But even as Christians, how many of us think of prayer as standing in front of God, looking Him in the eyes, and talking like a normal person? That's what Abraham's doing here. Uh, The Lord has come to visit him, and they're having a conversation. What you need to notice there, though, is the initiative for that conversation is with God. God starts the conversation, and it'll also be God who brings this conversation to a close. Have you ever thought of your prayer that way? Most of my prayers start out with Father in Heaven or Dear Lord Jesus. Uh, They usually close with an Amen. My father used to say when we'd gather around in, in prayer time at church or at home, he, he might say something like, hey, uh, Isaac, you dial, I'll hang up. Because it seems like we initiate it and then we terminate it, right? Not this one. God starts it and he stops it. And Abraham's in the middle. Next time, maybe not when you're praying for dinner, but when you've got a heavy heart and you're praying Maybe ask yourself, okay, who started this session of prayer and who's going to end it? Maybe there's more going on than you know. But look at this, verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham surely 
uh, shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's odd, too. You've got this delegation of three talking among themselves as to whether or not to bring Abraham in on what they know that he doesn't. And it all has to do with what's going to happen in chapter 19. So here's the rationale to bring him into the conversation. Uh, He will be a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For one, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to two, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring, that's number three, to Abraham what he's promised him. There's quite a lot of... uh, of information there in the lead up to this prayer. One thing you can gather here is that Revelation's always God's prerogative. If God doesn't bring Abram in on what's happening, or Abraham, he's not going to know, no more than we would know about God if we didn't have our Bibles. God chooses whom he's going to reveal himself to. There's plenty of stuff God knows that we don't. In fact, comparatively speaking, just about everything and basically nothing. Think of all the things that God knows and what he's told us through his scripture. So he tells Abraham what's going on. Um, And do you consider that wise? Are you glad God doesn't tell us everything? Isn't Isn't that a character quality of good parenting? You don't tell your kids everything, do you? Some of you tell them too much because sometimes I go through the hallways and I ask your kids things like, are mom and dad still fighting? I don't do that. It's a joke. See if you're paying attention and listening. My father did do that, though. He really did in the hallways. In front of the parents, of course, just to watch the horror on their face. And then he'd laugh at them. But he was older when he did that. Maybe that'll happen when I get older. I don't know. I got a lot more gray hair than I did when I got here. So let's see. Another 10 years, maybe I'll be saying, are y'all still fighting? But anyway, um, there are things that I will tell some of my children that I won't tell other of my children because some can keep a secret and some can't. And then back to that suitcase on the train. Sometimes at certain stages there are things far too heavy for your children to carry at the moment. It's wisdom to wait for their maturity and then tell them the truth when they need to know the truth. Abraham evidently needs to know this truth. The verse shows clearly how grace and law work together. That whole phrase there, um, beginning with, shall I tell him, and then those three ingredients, it opens with grace, I've chosen him, and articulates an expectation of obedience that they're going to be righteous and justice, uh, that God receives the glory for delivering what he's promised them. All, All that's wrapped up into this prelude. And then in verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. That does not sound like a small thing. I'll go down to see whether they've done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, where exactly this outcry is coming from is unclear. It's not specified here in what we're reading. I don't know that it needs to be. Because the obvious thing about an outcry is that an outcry is voiced by the abused or the victimized. 
Are they exploited? The outcry from Sodom is certainly not coming from those who are consenting to those grave and sinful activities, right? It's those who are collaterally damaged by those things. And it's the same when we read through that passage in Judges. It's the same in so many other places where there's this cry from the innocents that makes its way to heaven and God comes down, though he doesn't need to, in order to prove that his judgments are carefully weighed and well-informed. All through the, the Old and New Testament, you, you see this repeated uh, in the company of two or three witnesses, especially in the law with um, you know, Deuteronomy, giving of the law and carrying out punishment. It's not just one man's word against another. It's the company of two or three witnesses. Here you've got God with two angels as witnesses. They're going to go down there and they're going to verify this. And then it's going to be handled and taken care of. So it would be easy to say that what happens next with Abraham and God comes close to haggling. Any of you like haggling? Is that kind of like your thing? Is that, is that your, your hobby or your sport? I know some people do. I've, I've never enjoyed that. I, I just... Uh, hey, what, what, what's your best price? And then if I don't like it, I'll walk out. But there are some that just... I'm very close to someone. And whenever I'm in that situation, and I know that's what he's going to do. It's about the point where I say... Oh, good grief, I've got to go make a phone call because it's going to be all day long to get a nickel so he can say, i got a nickel. This is not haggling, I don't think at all. If, if, you, if you need a word at all, maybe exploring is a good term. This is a human being feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith articulated best by verse 25 in conversation with the God of the universe. I I really have no category to even imagine what this is like. And and you want to just stand back in humility with your eyes wide open and maybe your jaw open as well, that God would allow what sounds like negotiation. You wouldn't do that, would you? Well, what if it was this? What if it was this? What if it was this? Again, go back to thinking about perhaps your children worried about something, something whether or not it's fair, if this is right, is this going to persist, will this end? And they've got so many questions, and you want to just say, trust me. If not, knock it off. You know, patience, there's only so much of it. But this is not us and our children. This is God and his children. So... Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So it's obvious at this point that though that voice of outcry has made it to heaven, it's made it to Abraham too. He knows what goes on where his family members live. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Would you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked giving them both the same thing when they do not deserve the same thing. 
And then far be it from you. And here's the second amazing question of this passage. We'll close by looking at the two of them again. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If I've got this right, Lord, you're the judge of the world. You're God of the universe. You have to be fair. You can't sweep away the innocent with the uninnocent. And you can't not punish evil either. How are you going to do both? These are people that are close to me. It's just a human being knowing what's coming and then pleading on behalf of those that the Lord is fair in what he does. So it seems Abram's appeal, I'm saying Abram, I mean Abraham. I said Abram for what? Two months and then God changes his name and you've got to say the same name. You've got to have it saying Abram is Abraham. Abraham's appeal rests on the twin pillars of justice and mercy. Now, we already talked about grace. That's getting something that you don't deserve. Abraham did not deserve the favor God placed on him. But then you've got mercy. That's not giving someone something they do deserve. There's grievous sin in this city, and it deserves punishment. What is a just punishment? Even so, Abram is in, Abraham is in a moral impasse because if the cities are destroyed, the innocent will suffer. He knows of his, his, his nephew Lot, which Hebrews calls just Lot, in which case the justice of God becomes suspect if he's going to destroy the just along with the unjust. But... If the cities are spared, the guilty escape their just punishment, again, making God's justice suspect. So Abraham's prayer is that God will deliver the city to which God agrees for the sake of at least ten righteous people. Did you notice how he agrees every time? And the words that, that Abraham uses at the beginning are short, and they get longer as he goes. The words that God uses are long, and the further they go, the shorter they get. The temperature of it is thickening, as it were, the, the, the air, that is. He's wearing out his welcome. Verse 32, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. The Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's the Lord who wraps up, concludes the discussion. So, what should we learn from this? You've got the episode at lunch. It's Sarah and her belief. It's a long shot. No, it's an impossibility. Is there anything too hard or wonderful for the Lord? And then... After pleading for justice, but not without mercy, the question is, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Those are the two questions. Now, what can we do? We're far removed from ancient Hebrew culture when it's just Abraham and Sarah, his wife, 
Isaac's not even here yet. What do we do with this? Now, I thought maybe the best way to wrap this up is just to look at those two questions again. Maybe reverse them. Start out with that last one. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? Because at what point does God's mercy, that's not getting something we do deserve, when does his mercy run out? How many times will he save cities like Nineveh? He did not save Sodom and Gomorrah. It looked like mercy ran out there. But not without saving the innocent. They escaped, right? And then what we'll see at the end of the chapter next week is they don't look very righteous. Not at all. In fact, we don't even know what to think of these people. So how does all this work? How can the judge of all the earth deal justly in sticky, complicated, impossible situations? I don't know if you've ever figured this out yet. I'm 45, and I, I don't know that it'll ever be figured out. I just, I'm, I'm resigned. To, it's not figure outable. Life is not simple. Relationships are not simple. Our personalities are not simple. Our own inner monologue and our own resolve to do right and just as a Christian under God accountable to this church is not bulletproof, not even for 24 hours. How in the world do we find our way through this minefield and with what division of nuance do we need just to stay off each other's backs as Christians in the department of the morality police to even make an attempt to live for the glory of God this is not easy how does the judge of all the earth do what is just without an iron fist wouldn't the just, righteous thing to do be just to delete the whole problem? I mean, let's just make up silly illustrations on the fly here. Let's say you're cooking dinner, and your dinner involves chicken, and you go to Walmart, and you buy it raw, and you take it home, and you cook it. And in cooking it, you get raw chicken juice on all kinds of things. Do you clean up all of it or just most of it? Oh, everybody loves a good case of salmonella, don't they? <laughs> now, you're going to try your absolute best to get rid of all that raw chicken juice because you've been taught since a kid, it'll kill you. Chicken tastes great, but raw chicken juice is bad, Right? So how far would the just God of the universe track down all sin when it lives in every one of his created beings' hearts? How can he treat the sin and save the sinner? How does it work? At this point, just in our heads, we're almost sitting there with Sarah. What's wrong, Sarah? He thinks that he can give this 
99-year-old woman a child. And I want to say, and your husband thinks that he can clean up Sodom and Gomorrah without destroying every last molecule of it. What do you do? Well, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? How about that first question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? If anybody could do it, it could only be him. Now, if you were to fast forward to the New Testament and you got to the third gospel, which is Luke, in the first chapter, somewhere verse 30-something, you're going to find that there's an angel dispatched to speak to not an old woman but a young girl. And that young girl is going to be told that she's going to be expecting. And that's a big deal for her because she knows in her head there's a big problem. She hasn't known a man. Another impossible case of conception. What do you suppose that angel tells her in response to her bewildered disbelief? Nothing's impossible with God. It's almost verbatim the same sentence. You want to say there's, there's something too wonderful for God to do? And what is this wonderful thing that he's going to do as the Holy Spirit, almost descriptive of brooding over the tovu bobohu in Genesis? This child is going to be holy. This child is going to save his people from their sins. And how is he going to do it? By destroying all the sinners? No. He's going to take their punishment for them in their place, paying for their sins in his own body, personally. Has there ever been articulated any more wondrous a thing than that? Which is precisely what God did. And is the only means whereby that just judge of the universe can be fair to you and me. Because it's certainly not fair to the Son of God. This is a pitiful illustration. Maybe it'll hit the spot. It comes from this past week. When everybody in the house was sick, except Corey, moms get spared, don't they? But when your six-month-old baby gets it, it's rough. And when her temperature starts to creep toward that 104 mark where you got to get in the car and take her somewhere, it's really bad. And when you have to put her in a bath that's much colder than she would want, do you know what it does to parents and siblings who have to watch it? It makes them cry. And then it makes them say things like, I wish I could just take it for her. It's not possible. There was time in this world and this created order where one being was able to take it from another. And that was God and his own son. 
Folks, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take exercising our muscles of faith to get through next week's message. And only the understanding of the love of perfection will get us through it. It's the only way the story makes sense. We're going to have to pull out those first ten words again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we believe that, we'll get through chapter 19. Because he can. He does. And he's fair. He took our death and punishment for us. To God be the glory. I think that's enough for today. You know your homework for next week. We'll be back again. Same place. Same day. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your promise. Lord we thank you. For the way in which you deal with humanity. Bringing along an old couple by this point. Asking them to place their faith and trust in you. That you will do what you promised. Even to this day where we're to trust you with faith. That you have done what you promised on the cross. And that you will provide for us that blessing. First spoken to Abraham. But goes for the whole world. To be your own. Your inheritance. That we would be your possession, created and redeemed. Lord, there's no story like this. Would you press it upon us such that it means so much that we could never imagine not telling it to other people? And Lord, would you give us the means to do so? We ask all this in the strong, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.